Hey, thanks for checking out the weekly podcast from Chattanooga Valley Baptist Church. We hope you found this episode to be challenging and encouraging. Now, let's turn our attention to this week's sermon from Pastor Brian Carroll. I know that none of you guys have ever gotten into any kind of an argument or fight with church folks before, right? I mean, we almost saw it right here. You know, there's about to be a smackdown over, over the, the pillow here. But I know none of us, none of the rest of us in the room have ever gotten any, to any kind of argument or fight with, with church folks that, that everybody in our church life, have, have, you know, we've always gotten along perfectly with everybody. There's never been any kind of conflict or controversy or anger or irritation. Nothing like that's ever happened in any of your lives, I know. However, I can say that I've probably gotten into my fair share of, of arguments and disagreements with church folks before. Um, I'm not uh, necessarily proud of it, but one of the things I've learned is that every time I get into, any time there's an argument or disagreement, they're, they're always grievous to me. You know, it's never like you get into an argument and, and you walk away thinking, man, that felt good, you know, to, to get into that argument with somebody. But but, uh, I mean, now granted, it, it never matters. It doesn't matter who's right or who's wrong. I mean, there may be that moment where if you're right, you feel vindicated. Like, I knew I was right. But at what cost? At what, what consequence does that come with? Because the, the fact of the matter is, because of our sinful tendencies, the damage that's caused to those relationships is, is often irreparable. Um, maybe you're sitting here or sitting at home today and and maybe as I talk, you're even thinking about relationships in your church life, your church experience that have been irreparably damaged because of some sort of conflict or argument that has unfolded. And I don't know, I remember one such situation in my life in ministry. It's been a long time ago. And I won't go into details on the off chance that the person involved is watching online or listening to the podcast or something like that. Um, but I'll say this, the situation, it was a bad family situation. And you can fill in the blanks, you, you can probably guess some things, but it was a bad family situation and it was made worse by a terrible miscommunication. Again, no malintent was involved, nobody was up to no good. I did as pastor what I thought I was supposed to do. I did what I even believed was the right thing to do. However, in the circumstance, the outcome was one of the absolute worst things that I could have done. Um, my phone rang later that night after this situation unfolded, and I answered. I actually saw on caller ID who it was, and I thought, I thought in my pride, I thought, well, I'm going to get a thank you for what I did. And what I got was the embodiment of rage on the other end of the phone. Somebody that was angrier than I think I had ever experienced anger before. Uh, it was, they were so angry, I was grateful that they were not anywhere close to me. Because if they had been close to me, they might have driven to my house and, and, and let that rage flow out in a face-to-face -face confrontation. Uh, it didn't matter that I thought I was right. What mattered in that moment was that relationship that I had had that was suddenly at great jeopardy. It didn't matter that I did what I thought I was supposed to do. What mattered in that moment was the anger that was being expressed towards me. In my mind, I was ministering to a family in crisis, but that's not at all how that situation was, was perceived. You know, I didn't sleep much that night because I'm a fixer. I suspect a lot of the men in the room are fixers. There's a problem that, you know, whether it's in your family or in your home or in your marriage or in your job, and, and there's a problem and you want to you fix it. 
You got got to fix it. Got to make it right. The you know the 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 faucet's leaking. I got to fix it. You know there's a problem. I got to fix it. And I'm a I'm a fixer. You tell me there's a problem, and I want to I want to fix it. I want to make it better. I want to make it right. Um, but there was no fixing this. There was no correcting the damage that had been done, at least in the human sphere. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit was at work. And a few days later, my phone rang, and where there was, you ever had that phone call where you see the caller ID and you think, I don't want to answer that, right? That's kind of how I felt. But I saw that caller ID, and I said, you know what, I need to, I need to answer this and see what happens. And there where once was rage, there was actually a tearful apology from somebody. And by God's grace, that relationship that was so damaged that day by a miscommunication, a misunderstanding, a, a legitimate misunderstanding, that relationship that was, was damaged by God's grace, it was restored and it was made stronger and stronger than it had ever been before almost like a metal refined by fire. You put, enough, you put metal in enough heat, and it's going to come out stronger on the other side. And that's sort of what happened with me and my brother that day. If you recall back um, in Acts chapter 13, during the first missionary trip that took place in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas' traveling companions, one of the traveling companions abandoned them. Um, we weren't given much information at the time there in Acts chapter 13. Honestly, if you go back and you read Acts chapter 13, verse 13, you'll find that when that situation unfolded, there wasn't even any moral judgment attached to it. John Mark left and went back to Jerusalem. It was a simple report from Luke that John had to leave, but it's not until we get into Acts chapter 15 that we learn that there must have been a lot more going on there than meets the eye in the story. The timeline here was... It's pretty straightforward, what's been going on. Last week we talked about part of Acts chapter 15 called the Jerusalem Council. We talked about the, the groundwork that was laid during that meeting to, to help, uh, help Gentile and Jewish Christians get along better. After the council's recommendation had been given, the, the church at Antioch received the report and were told that ministry actually took place for a while without any known or, or recorded interruptions. However, after a, after a time had passed, it was decided by Paul and Barnabas and their missionary church there that it was time to take a visit to the churches that were established in the first missions trip. And one of the things we learn as we get into this text today is that, is that not every disagreement comes with a happy ending like mine did. So we pick up today in Acts chapter 15 beginning in verse 36. If you're able, I would invite you to stand with me in reverence to the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 15 beginning in verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Father, I thank you for your word, even when it reports things that aren't altogether um, joyful and happy endings. 
Uh, Lord, may we learn from these men and from their mistakes and, and their damaged relationships, and may we uh, work to make sure that we uh, are faithful to you, not just in how we relate to you, but how we relate to one another in the church. Uh, bless us now as we consider these words. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You can be seated. You know, one of the things I love about the Bible is that the human heroes are never painted as perfect. You, you, think about, uh, you think about how kind of our, our superhero stories are characterized today. And, and, and today we've gotten to where superheroes have got baggage. Like that's the cool thing to do is to, is to kind of the, the anti-hero, you know, uh, they're not perfect. But, but man, the, the, the classic superhero genre is, is these superheroes were, uh, there, was, there, was no, there was nothing wrong with them. I, I think of, about Thor's hammer. In order to lift Thor's hammer, you had to, you had to have a, possess a certain virtue. And none of the superheroes possessed the virtue to lift Thor's hammer except for one. And that's the best superhero. That was Captain America. Uh, but the Bible doesn't really paint the human heroes as perfect entities, as perfect beings who, who, who get it right all the time. Uh, in fact, our passage this morning shines a light on what really is a bitter disagreement. We don't have the full text here of all the argument, of all the words that were spoken. Luke simply sums it up here for us and says, a sharp disagreement. You have, these, you have this argument that, that actually has been brewing. It's been boiling. It's been boiling since Acts chapter 13, verse 13, when John abandoned them on the mission field. John Mark abandoned them on the mission field. Again, we don't know the details. We don't know the full extent of what happened. Luke doesn't report that for, for us. But it is evident that Mark's return to Jerusalem there in Acts chapter 13 wasn't universally celebrated. Uh, it wasn't something that people embraced. It wasn't something that, uh, that, that, that was, uh, was worthy of praise. But now time has passed. As far as we can tell, it's been a year or two since that first missionary journey. But you remember back from 13, Mark went back to Jerusalem. And it kind of makes sense that if Mark was back in Jerusalem, they go to Jerusalem for this meeting to settle the issue with the Gentile churches. And it kind of makes sense that they met Mark while they were there. And, and it kind of makes sense that Barnabas would look at Mark and say, hey, Mark, come back to Antioch with us and, and help us participate in the ministry at Antioch. But Paul is apparently still a little put off by what happened during that last missions trip. Which tells me something. It tells me that there's more going on here than John Mark having to leave for a valid reason. Now, I've been on mission trips before. I've been on mission trips where somebody's had to come home early um, because of a crisis at home. I, I've, I've, I've witnessed that. I've seen what that's like. And it's hard to leave a mission team behind because there's something at home that has to be tended to. But I've seen that happen. I've actually been home when an entire mission team has had to come home because of a crisis involving one of the members that just didn't feel right to leave the team there, and the whole team agreed they needed to come home because of the situation that unfolded at home. I've seen these things. I understand the pain and the heartbreak that's there, but they were legitimate, legitimate issues that were unfolding that needed to be tended to. We can clearly see, though, that this is not the case with John Mark. And we can also see that Paul and Barnabas are wired very differently. And I think we know, we understand this inherently. We experience this today because Barnabas was wired high on a mercy scale. Some of y'all are really high on the mercy scale so that when like, somebody does something stupid, 
Like you want to show grace after grace after grace because you've done something stupid before and, and so your mercy scales off the charts and so you're quick to forgive. When somebody stumbles, you're quick to help them up. When somebody needs something, you're quick to, you're quick to want to meet that need. You drive past the guy holding the cardboard sign at the intersection and your heart beats for that person. You don't care that they may take the money you're going to give them and go do something dumb with it. Your, your heart beats for that person. You're high on that mercy scale. And then there's people like me. <laughs> um, Barnabas is high like that. I mean, he's wired way up there. But Paul is wired more towards the truth scale, okay? So, so the truth scale person, the person who's a little lower on the mercy scale, says, you know what? He messed up. I don't know if I can trust him yet. I don't know if he's earned his, his place back. You look at the guy with the cardboard sign, and you think, if I give him cash, he's just going to go do what with it? Buy booze and drugs, right? I mean, that's what he's going to do. And so the mercy person looks at the truth person and says, you're a cold-hearted snake. And the truth person looks at the mercy person and says, you're a sucker. But here's the thing. We need them both in the church, right? We need both of those elements in the church, and that's what actually brings, here's my Star Wars reference, it brings balance to the force to have both in place in the church, Paul and Barnabas are these, these guys. You've got Paul who's high on the truth scale and Barnabas who's high on the, on the mercy scale. But guess what happens? When you've got people who are high on the mercy scale versus people who are high on the truth scale, guess what sometimes happens? They butt heads. They do because they don't see the world the same way. All you mercy people see the world through rose-colored glasses, right? I'm kidding. I understand. I, we're, we, just, we just see things differently. And so sometimes that results in conflict, and, and sometimes it results in disagreements. Here we have the Apostle Paul. Paul is high on the truth scale. He wants nothing to do with Mark on a mission trip. I kind of look at Paul, and I say, you know, I don't blame you. I don't want Mark on my mission trip either, because Mark's got a job to do. And if I bring Mark along, Mark's got a job to do, and Mark had a job to do two years ago, and we needed Mark, and Mark, Mark left us high and dry. I don't want Mark on my mission trip. He abandoned us before. What's stopping him from doing it again? It wasn't just a sightseeing adventure. He abandoned the job. He doesn't get the job again. Now, Paul doesn't write him out of the kingdom, but he is clearly at this point in time not interested with any more mission trips with John Mark in tow. Now, Barnabas, Barnabas says he's had plenty of time. He's had a year or two to, to, to come to grips with what he did. Barnabas isn't saying he did the right thing. I mean, Barnabas isn't ignoring the, the, the situation, but Barnabas is like, you know what, he's had plenty of time. Let's give him a second chance. Now, by means of full transparency, it would appear that Barnabas and John Mark are related. Over in Colossians chapter 4, verse 10, it identifies there's a guy named Mark who is the cousin of Barnabas, and so it's very likely that the Mark that Barnabas is showing grace to is probably related, which may explain why he's a little more willing to show grace. It may explain why he has some compassion towards him. Now, what we have here, I'm going to give you a big theological term. You ready? We have in theological terms what's called a pickle. You ever been in a pickle before? Two different opinions about the way forward. We had a pickle down here at the, at the kids' time. We had, we had two different directions, and we had two different opinions about the best way to get forward, to, to get to the goal. We, were, we had a pickle demonstrated right here for us in front of the church. Two opinions about the way forward. And here's the question. Who's right, Paul or Barnabas? You may have your opinion about who's right and who's wrong. 
Maybe you find yourself on Team Paul and you recognize the wisdom of, of the wisdom of just trusting the people that you're serving with. Being able to, I mean, that you, I need this guy to have my back. I need to know that if I get in trouble that John Mark's going to be there with me, that you know, he, he's, he's with me. Again, you're not saying no to Bar- to, or to John Mark, but you're saying a strong not yet. He's not quite ready yet. It's not time yet. A year isn't quite long enough to sort through the problems that led to the last issue. Maybe you're on Team Barnabas. Maybe you look at this and you say, you know what? God gives second chances all the time because God gives me second chances. And so I'm willing to extend those second chances to others because of the grace that I've received. You look at this situation and you say a year is plenty long enough for somebody to get their act together. John Mark's had plenty of time to sort through his concerns, to sort through his fears. It's time to get John Mark on the mission field again. Here's the thing. The Bible never resolves this. The pickle goes into eternity unresolved. The Bible doesn't tell us who's right or who's wrong. The Bible doesn't say Team Paul is right. The Bible doesn't say Team Barnabas is right. The Bible just reports the outcome. Instead, what happens is instead of a a resolution, this conflict between Paul and Barnabas escalates to the point that we are told a sharp disagreement arose between the two. This was no disagreement to work out over coffee. This was no miscommunication that could be solved with a phone call. This is a sharp disagreement. It was emotionally charged. Undoubtedly, words were exchanged, and words are difficult to take back. It's hard to get the toothpaste back in the tube once it's been squeezed. A sharp disagreement. It comes to the point that the only solution was for Paul and Barnabas, the Batman and Robin of missionaries, the only possible solution was for them to to go their separate ways. If you read this, you think this is tragic. It is tragic. This is devastating. And these men did life together. They, they, they were soul brothers. They, they, could, they could finish each other's sentences. When, when Paul was preaching, Barnabas knew when the invitation was coming. I mean, this was, they, were, they were in each other's heads in a good way. And the only outcome was to split and go a different direction. So we're told that Barnabas and Mark, perhaps his cousin, they got on a boat and they sailed to Cyprus. And understand this, when this happens in Acts chapter 15, Barnabas is never heard from again. You won't find him after this, is, after this story, you will not find him mentioned again. Now, he's alluded to in the letters, but Barnabas' story from our perspective, it's over. It's done. We don't know what happens to him. We don't know what the outcome of his journey is. He's gone from the story, as far as we can tell. We're told that Paul chose a new partner, a guy by the name of Silas. You know the stories about Paul and Silas. We'll get to those eventually. We're told Paul chose Silas. They went on a different route. They went on a land route. Barnabas and and Mark went by sea, and Paul and Silas went by land. Went into Asia Minor, into Turkey, into some new areas there. And maybe... 
Maybe he and Barnabas reconciled at some point in time. We don't get to see that in the biblical text. I'm sure we'll get to heaven and Paul and Barnabas are buddies. Because uh, you've ha- you got to reconcile in heaven. So if you're mad at somebody today and they're a Christian, get over it because you're going to have to deal with it in heaven. You're not going to get there and keep, you, keep your bitterness and keep your anger. It's going to go away. Uh, so you're better off dealing with it on this side of heaven so that, uh, so that Jesus doesn't have to mediate it on the next. Um, so we consider this tragic, this, this tragic story in the journey. But there's a couple things I want us to consider because the principles we can glean from this text actually are very helpful for us today in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is a very simple point. It's one that you should write down and ask yourself this on a regular basis, this simple question. What does God think? Again, maybe you think about the old bracelets, what would Jesus do? Ask yourself the question, what does God think? Now, I will say this. We should not make it a habit to interpret the Bible based on what it doesn't say. That's a dangerous hermeneutic to apply to biblical text, trying to glean ideas from what is silent in the text. Uh, It's always a better habit to take what the Bible says and apply it rather than what it doesn't say. But there are times when there are things that go unspoken, and it is actually louder than that which is spoken. And I think that this is one of these times. When you look at these five verses that I've read today, you can't help but notice that there is something missing from this whole story. There is something missing from this whole interaction. And what we find that's missing is that at no point in time in this whole situation do we see Paul and Barnabas asking the Lord what he thinks about this. We don't see them praying. We don't see them having this conversation. We don't see this, this, this part of this story unfolding. Now, again, I go back to previous examples in their, in their missionary journey. In the first missionary journey, we encounter these words back at the beginning of chapter 13. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So prior to their first mission trip, the Holy Spirit's moving, the Holy Spirit's active. God says, set these guys apart. I want these guys to serve together, to work together. It's out of the context of worship and prayer and fasting and seeking the Lord. There's some spiritual energy going into this first missionary journey. You keep going in verse 4 of chapter 13. It says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And so as they went, they went in the power and the authority and the counsel of the Holy Spirit. So there's no question that when they set forth on their first missionary journey that God was behind it, God was blessing it, God was moving, God was working, God was using, God was directing We get to the onset of the second missionary journey, and instead of it being birthed out of a context of worship and seeking the Lord and praying and fasting and all those sort of things, it's birthed out of an idea that says, hey, let's go visit the other churches, and immediately it sets into conflict and disagreement and confusion and and anger towards one another. Immediately the whole thing changes and we don't get the sense that this is birthed out of a, you know, God moving and working and, and directing. Now, I'm not saying Paul and Barnabas weren't praying through it. Luke may have simply not recorded that for us. But you would think that if he recorded it for the first one, that he'd probably want to record it here as well, just to document God's move and work and all this whole thing. But I think there's a very important principle here in this situation that we can glean from this argument. And this is very important. Before we ever let arguments and conflicts boil over into causing irreparable harm, we need to cooperatively ask the question, what does God think about this? 
And this could be any number of things. What does God think about this? Most of the time, the things that we fuss about in church, I think the answer to that is that God probably doesn't really care. Because the things we often fuss about in church are irrelevant matters of preference, right? Like what color should something be? I can't imagine the number of churches that have had arguments and fights and splits over those sort of things. And, and quite honestly, I don't know that God really cares if you paint the walls white or gray or, or, or anything. I don't know that he really cares. It's, it's, it's irrelevant in the grand scheme of eternity because guess what happens to all the stuff that we invest our time and effort and energy in in the physical world here? Guess what happens to all the paint we put on the walls, all the carpet we put on the floors? Guess what happens to all of it? Ross, or rust and moth destroy. It's not permanent. What's permanent is what's here 10,000 years from now, and that's our, that's our souls. And that's, the, that's the, the gospel work that we do. What does God think about this thing that causes this disagreement? I don't know what God thought about the John Mark situation. I can't bring judgment to this situation. Why? Because I don't know all the circumstances. I don't know Mark's testimony. I don't know what Mark has had to say. I don't know what Mark has learned in the last year or two years. I don't know anything about that. I don't know where Barnabas is coming from. I don't know where Paul is coming from. I don't have the answer to those questions, so I can't bring an answer to that. But here's the thing. If you're never asking the question, then you may never know the answer. What does God think about this? Whatever this is, whatever this argument, disagreement, uh, misunderstanding, what does God think about this? There's three places where we can work to find that answer. And the first place that we can work to find the answer is this. God shows us what he thinks in his word. God has made so much known to us. He's made it clear to us in the word of God. Uh, there may be some places where, where we don't clearly understand what he's trying to communicate to us. Like that opening part of Ezekiel where you got all this vision of wheels and angels and all that sort of stuff. I, I, I struggle with application there. There's probably not a lot of moral, uh, relational application in that particular text. Just like the book of Revelation, that's telling things about that, that, that aren't here yet. And, and again, it's important. It's causes us to look to the future, but, but in terms of just me working out my day-to-day -day relationships with my brothers and sisters, it's probably not going to be the first place I turn. But you know what? If I go to what Jesus said in like the Sermon on the Mount, man, that starts to give me some real meat on which I can understand how I'm supposed to work with my brothers and sisters. And that starts to give me some principles on how I'm supposed to, to sort through this. Again, most of the text that we need to understand is very straightforward. And we're not resolving conflict from those challenging texts anyway. So if you want to know what God thinks about this, then first place to look is see what the Word of God says. The second place that we can begin to understand this is that God leads us into his will as we pray. Here's a wonderful, wonderful tool. If you are mad at somebody, pray for that person. Works in marriage, works in church, works at your job. If you're angry at somebody, you pray for that person. And I'm not talking about you praying those imprecatory psalms where you're praying the wrath of God to fall on that person. Right? I mean, there's places you can go and pray some, pray some pretty nasty things. The psalmist showed us. But I'm talking about genuine heartfelt prayers for understanding. That you would understand their perspective, that they might understand your perspective, that you would genuinely and honestly and, and offer heartfelt, heartfelt prayers for the person that you're angry with. 
In Luke chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus said this. He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. This is Jesus talking about our enemies, that we need to be praying for our enemies, blessing our enemies. I'm not even talking about our enemies. I'm talking about brothers and sisters in Christ that we're not seeing eye to eye with. That if we're supposed to pray for our enemies, bless our enemies, look for the good for our enemies, how much more should we do that for the people that we're supposed to be in right relationship with? That we should be seeking the, the, the welfare of our, of our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we should be blessing and, and, and praying for them. You see, what happens, though, as we pray, God starts to soften our hearts towards one another. That person that you just can't see eye to eye with, you start praying for that person, God starts to, maybe God works on their heart, but most of the time what happens is that God starts working on your heart. God starts dealing with you. And I start to see the situation not through my perspective, but through their perspective. And maybe they start to see the situation through my perspective. And when that happens, we're far more likely to reach a compromise. The story I told you at the very beginning, what happened in that situation, we didn't reach out to each other and sing Kumbaya. What happened is I started praying for that, that, that man. I started praying for him and, and, and not, I'm right, how dare he call me and, and, and swear at me? How dare he pick up the phone and talk to me that way? I didn't do that. I could have. I, I was right. He was wrong. No, I started praying for that person and realized that even though I did the right thing, it came across the wrong way. And, and, it, and it was a, a, a huge controversy. But we started praying, and God started moving, and hearts started softening. Thirdly, we understand that God guides us into truth through wise counsel. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 15. It says, A way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Don't be so convinced that you're right, that you're unwilling to listen to wise counselors. So again, God shows us what he wants from his word, tells us most of what he desires from us in his word. He, he helps us work through it by praying for one another. But even when we're still coming up short, he gives us wise counsel. And Proverbs, if you want to do a study on this, look at what Proverbs has to say about somebody who, who uh, rejects the counsel of, of trusted advisors. Don't be so convinced that you're right, that you're you're unwilling to listen to wise counselors. And understand this, wise counselors aren't biased towards your perspective. I mean, it's easy to surround yourself with what we call yes men, people who, who will only, uh, you know, you're right, they're wrong, the end. Don't, it's not wise counselors. Wise counselors are looking for people, or people who are looking for God's desire in a situation, that the right outcome, not your outcome. And here's the thing. If other people correct you, get ready, Receive that correction as a gift from God, not as something to, in your pride, be angry about. We are so quick to dash relationships against the rocks of pride and the altar of I'm right and they're wrong. Now, this doesn't solve every issue. This doesn't fix every relationship. This doesn't answer every argument. But the first question when we get into those disagreements should not be, why I'm right and they're wrong. The first question when we get into those disagreements should simply be this. Well, what does God think about this? Could it be that I'm wrong and they're right? Could it be that we're, we're both kind of wrong? Or could it be that we're both kind of right 
think that God places a very high value on our relationships and our ability to reconcile those relationships. Because our ability to reconcile those relationships is a direct testament to a lost and dying world. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Our ability to fix and restore those relationships speaks to a lost and dying world because a lost and dying world, guess what? It's okay to toss those relationships aside. It's okay not to deal with the disagreements. It's okay not to deal with the arguments. In church, it's not how we operate. It's not how we work. The second principle is this. Even when the disaster happens, the fact of the matter is this. God can still use our errors for good. I love that God can do this, that even when, when we fail to reconcile, the fact that is that God can still redeem our disasters for his good. We don't get a report on Barnabas and Mark. Their ministry continues as far as we can tell, but Luke, the reporter of this, could only go with one team. If there's a positive to this disagreement, it's this. There's now two very competent missionary teams traveling around the Mediterranean pointing people at Jesus. If there's a positive there, the, the, the missionary force has just doubled. And in Paul's leg of the journey, we find in, in coming chapters some remarkable things happen. In Paul's leg of the journey, the gospel makes its way into Europe. If Paul and Barnabas never, never part ways, then you don't have that Macedonian call where the man from Macedonia pleads with Paul to come over into Europe and share the gospel there. You don't have the gospel penetrating into the, the European continent like that. You find that key figures like Timothy are never converted in that outcome. Now, could God have still done these things had Paul and Barnabas never split up? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think we all understand that the answer to that question is a resounding yes. At the same time, the outcomes that we're about to see in chapter 16 and following can be directly traced to this conflict and their having to part ways. So don't fret today. If your life is littered with damaged relationships from arguments and fights at church that you really can't go back and fix, God can still do great things with all the pieces, but at the same time today, we understand that they will know that we are disciples based on our love for one another, not based on our arguments with one another. And we as Christians today who've found our way onto social media, we desperately need to recognize that the lost and dying world does not know Jesus based on how we argue based on how we fuss and feud with one another in our public settings. The end of the matter, though, is this. When it comes, redemption is a beautiful thing. Many people believe 2 Timothy is the last letter that Paul wrote, and I would tend to agree with that, that assertion. It, it almost, if you go back and read 2 Timothy, it almost is written like a deathbed letter of sorts. Paul is, uh, uses language like, now I'm being poured out like a drink offering language that communicates that he's reaching the end of his life. And, and chapter 4 of 2 Timothy contains some of the most intimate words written by the Apostle Paul. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 9, written to Timothy, the young man that Paul won to Christ as a result of his split with Barnabas. Okay? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. Talking to Timothy, he says, Do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Paul saying, I'm alone. These people have left. Demas has left for wrong reasons. 
Luke, the guy that's recording our story in Acts, Luke alone is with me. Pay so much attention to what's next in this sentence. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me. What happened to Barnabas? We don't know. We don't know. But in his last words written down for us, who does Paul want at his side? Timothy. But he also wants Mark. He goes on, Tychicus I've sent to Ephesus. He says, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and the books and the parchments. Paul's a good preacher. He wants his library there when he dies. Did you catch that? Everything was said and done. And Paul's on the last leg of his journey. Luke, Timothy, and this man named Mark, that he uses the, describes him this way as being very useful for me in ministry. Whoa, rewind, right? Rewind the tape here. Mark abandoned them on the mission trip. Paul wanted nothing to do with Mark when it was time to take the second mission trip. They split ways over this argument. And now Mark is with Barnabas in one place and Paul is with Silas in another. They go throughout their, their next decades of ministry. And from what we can tell, their paths don't cross in written form in the text. But when Paul is near his death and he's ready to, to gather his friends together, bring Mark with you because he's useful to me in ministry. <laughs> Back in Acts chapter 15, Mark wasn't altogether useful. But over the course of time, that changed, and Mark became a useful man in Paul's ministry. And that's a word for us today. Maybe there's a relationship that's been damaged along the way in your life. Maybe it's your fault. Maybe it was their fault. Maybe it was a misunderstanding or miscommunication. Maybe there was some sin involved. Likely there was. Maybe you can see where God used the conflict in other ways. Maybe today you're struggling to see exactly how God worked it all out. Let me encourage you today. Don't, don't give up. Don't stop praying. Don't stop looking for the breakthrough where God can do great things in your life and in their life. What a testament to God's grace and a beautiful picture of our own reconciliation in Christ. If that person who was so far removed from you because of this issue or because of that issue, if that person that, that was so controversial in your life that you had to part ways with a dear friend over it, if that person who you spent decades angry at, that you spent years arguing with, that person that you wouldn't speak to because of this disagreement, what a testament to God's grace and God's power. If that person became one of the people that you wanted near to you when your race was coming to a close. Again, I don't know who those people are in your life. Maybe you don't have anybody like that in your life. But if you do, what would it take today to see that kind of reconciliation 
tomorrow. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this disagreement, this sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas that gives us incredible insight into how we should function as your church and as your people. Lord, as we, as we meet here today, I pray that you might show in our own hearts that relationship that was damaged in some church fight, in some church argument. Maybe it's been damaged a little while. Maybe it's been damaged a long time. But we never stopped and asked the question, God, what do you think about all this? Maybe if we're honest, we can see in our own lives where, where we were just concerned about being right more than we were concerned about our testimony to a watching world. But God, as we ponder these things, I pray that you might call our attention to a face or a name or a situation that, that maybe could use a little more attention that maybe we gave up on too quickly, or maybe we said things that we regret. And maybe today as we watch snow falling from the sky, that maybe today we pick up the phone, and instead of our last words being words of anger, maybe it's words of apology. Maybe we send a text message that says, I'd like to get together this week and chat. Maybe a Facebook message or something. Just something that says that we're not convinced that we ended that the best we could. And what if today, God, the, through the work of the Holy Spirit, we could find those relationships that have been damaged and we could work to restore, to overcome the differences, the disagreements. God, what a better people we would be if we just simply stop and ask you what you think above and beyond what we think. I thank you for your word. And I thank you for the imperfect characters in the scriptures that are an encouragement to each of us. I pray these things today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you would like more information about Chattanooga Valley Baptist, check us out on the web at cvbchurch.org. If you would like to join in person, we worship every Sunday morning at 1045. We're just minutes from downtown Chattanooga. We hope to see you soon.